begin, please allow me a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to share with my friends things you've shown me from the scriptures um, that we need to relate to as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists. And as we begin this new series, I, Lord, trying to explore what is the heart of Seventh-day Adventism in the context of all the brothers and sisters that we share in, the, in this Christian faith, especially, Lord, in light of everything that's happening around us. So, Father, please, through your Spirit, make this a blessing to everyone that hears. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting a, a series entitled The Heart of Adventism. It is not a sermon series that's necessarily for Seventh-day Adventists. Actually, this is a series that will help you if you have, you're married to a Seventh-day Adventist or your son or your daughter is a Seventh-day Adventist and you're wondering, what is that about? What, is, what do they really believe? Um, this series actually is to help others understand what is at the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you know of Seventh-day Adventists, you may know that you know, our churches are open on Saturday, not on Sunday. And uh, maybe that's all you know. Maybe you know a little bit more, etc. But um, it's not just simply for us as Adventists to get a grip of who we are, but also to explain our brothers and sisters of other denominations to help them understand a little bit about ourselves. If you really want to understand something, it's best to just go directly to the person and not to Google YouTube, um, as we might be tempted to do. So this may, is not going to be a comprehensive attempt in trying to explain everything, but at least the heart, the core of why I am a Seventh-day Adventist, why your husband or your son or your aunt or your grandma shares this faith. So I hope it will bless you as well. I'm going to begin by telling you a story that um, is a little bit of an embarrassing story. Um, by the grace of God, I've never gotten a, a ticket, speeding ticket, parking ticket, none of those. I thank the Lord for that. Um, but this happened on June 9th. It was a Saturday evening. I still remember it. I was driving my hot rod, my Hyundai Accent. That was my college car, faithful little uh, car that I had. And the year was 2007. This is a very important date. Um, my friend Fredito and I, we were driving around trying to run some last-minute errands. And we were driving behind the osteopathic hospital in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And um, it's a straight road, and I was trying to skip the, the lights. But I didn't realize that I was not just skipping the lights in the main road. This is a back road. I was also skipping the stop signs. <laughs> Um, I went through the first one, and Fredito, who was going to become my brother-in-law the next day, looked at me and was like, um, did you just see that? And I'm like, oh man, sorry. Yeah. And as I'm saying that, I'll go through a second stop sign. And he is just like, brother, what are you doing? And uh, as soon as I said, man, brother, it's just do, do, do. I hear behind me the the sirens and I see the Christmas lights, the red and blue behind me. And I pull over and I'm like, oh great, out of all the nights. I was getting married the next day. My brain was just out there. Uh, all these things that were gonna be happening, all these changes. So I had my driver's license and my um, registration card and insurance, proof of insurance. As soon as the officer walked up to the window, I, I handed that to him and um, he looked at me and was like, uh, do you know why I'm pulling you over? They always ask that, right? Do you know why? Are you even aware? I said, um, 
I believe I went through two stop signs, officer, and he's like, okay, so you, you do know. Yes. Sir, are you under the influence? Are you inebriated? Have you been drinking anything? And I was like, no, officer. Um, so what, what happened? And I'm glad he was asking questions. He didn't, he didn't just give me a ticket. Uh, I could have said a whole bunch of things. Oh, my brain, I just can't concentrate, whatever. I was also going to nursing school, by the way. Um, it's not a good idea to be getting married as you're going to nursing school. But I simply said, I'm getting married tomorrow, officer. And my brain's not with me right now. That's it. The officer paused and said, he was a young guy. He said, um, listen, I got married six months ago. I know exactly what you're saying. Don't worry about it. Just drive carefully, <laughs> make it home quickly uh, and have a happy day tomorrow. So that was it. And he said, here's your ID back. And I was like, Phew. Fredito was like, this doesn't happen in Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if it happens or not. Maybe it didn't happen to him. But uh, for me, as I saw the police officer drive away, and um, I'll be honest with you, I almost ran through a th third stop sign, except that Fredito this time was like, hey, right there, right there, you need to stop. There's one coming right there at that corner. Um, but I thought about this business of the ID. Um, the officer asked me, ID, please. And I gave him this Pennsylvania-issued driver's license that lets me drive anywhere in the United States. Um, now I have one from Michigan. But you know, that driver's license basically told him I needed corrective lenses. It was listed right there, and we talked about this in a previous sermon, how I got those glasses. Um, that I'm an organ donor, and uh, eye, eye color, etc. Um, but that's it. That's, that's all it is, and some numbers, and a photograph, of course. But that ID really is, is just a superficial thing. It's an external thing. Anyone's driver's license, your driver's license, when a police officer picks it up, the driver's license will not say he is a good, responsible driver. This is very unusual. Nor will it say you need to arrest this person, take him in right now, now that you have him. Um, the driver's license will not reveal your heart. And when the officer said, you know, when I told him I was getting married, and he said, yeah, me too, I know exactly what you feel. He didn't immediately say, well, can I have your uh, qualified to get married license? See, I have to get a driver's license before I can get, be I can get, before, um, I can get behind a, a, a car and drive um, for safety precautions. But have you seen the test that you have to take for marriage? They have some, but very, very few people take those. And uh, most that I've had as a pastor come to me like when the wedding's already planned, the, the gown's been bought, the photograph, the photographer, everything else has been done. And then kind of like a, a little addendum. Oh, yeah, the, the counseling, the preparation for the actual real thing. Um, but there's no driver's license being given, right? When people get engaged, will you marry me? <gasps> yeah, wait a second. Do you have a license? The, the, the fiancé doesn't ask that to the groom, right? Future groom. On their wedding day, the pastor, the minister, doesn't say, can I see your IDs, please? I want to see the condition of your heart. Are you committed? Are you faithful? Those are things that we cannot produce. And that's why they don't exist. And that's why that, that uh, police officer, all he could say was, ID, please, what identifies you? And it's all an external thing. It's all an external, uh, outward uh, thing that reveals nothing, really, except that 
I'm allowed to do these things. Whether I run through step, a red light, whether I run through stop signs on a regular basis, etc., it doesn't say anything like that at all. Well, getting married is the same thing. And it made me think, you know, you can get a marriage license, but that doesn't mean you'll be a good husband or a good wife. It doesn't reveal your heart. All of these licenses and permits that we get are only external uh, revelations that someone has allowed us to uh, have these privileges or rights. The reason we cannot produce these deeper inner licenses or permits is because only God can provide those things. And in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, you see a whole bunch of IDs that God would give his people. Things that were external, but God never, never gave an external uh, ID, identification, simply to, for it to remain external. It was supposed to be a reflection of something that had happened inwardly. Uh, you had sacrifices. Some of these were unique. Abel, Noah, Abraham. I mean, Abel and, and uh, his brother Cain, right? They were both offering sacrifices. But the sacrifice that Abel offered identified him. It was an ID. He offered a lamb. He offered a sacrifice that symbolized, that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And God accepted that ID. When God would say to Abel, what's your ID? He would point to the sacrifice and God would say yes. But when he would go to Cain and say, what is your ID? The sacrifices that Cain would give, God would not accept. In the same way that that police officer, as he says, ID please, and I give him a driver's license from Argentina or other parts of the world, or I give him a credit card, that would, that would really go down bad, wouldn't it? Or some money, <laughs> that would not be good. Um, God had IDs. Actually, he has IDs all throughout the scriptures. A circumcision, you may be very, very well of this, uh, Abraham and onwards. This was an outward uh, ID that God gave his people. The Sabbath was present in the Garden of Eden already, and it carried over into humanity's experience. And it was ratified and brought back to their attention at Mount Sinai. It's not the first time that it came to exist. It already existed in creation. Wardrobe, the way that the priests, even the Israelites were supposed to dress. They, they had the specific guidelines that even the outward attire would distinguish them from the, their neighbors. But in a special way, the priests, the Bible says that they were to be dressed for beauty and for holiness. Even within the camp, the, the way that they dressed would identify them, identify them as having a special function um, and a form of ID. Uh, you have diet, uh, Daniel in, in Babylon, and of course the book of Leviticus with Israel as a whole. You have baptism. In the Old Testament, Paul says that when the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, that was a symbol or a type of the New Testament baptismal experience. In the New Testament, of course, you have John the Baptist um, and later on Jesus and his disciples. In the book of Revelation, you also have IDs. You have, again, clothing, uh, white robes, and then you have something extremely special, God's name written on the foreheads, um, the seal of God. Those are the things that, in the end times, God also has IDs. And we, we're going to be studying those throughout this series. But I want to begin to set the groundwork in that this is not unique. When people talk about the mark of the beast or the seal of God, some very 
real uh, things that are in the Bible that speak of realities that will be manifested and I believe are being manifested even now. We need to understand them, but we can't understand those if we haven't spent time studying these from the past. Um, and lastly, you have some negative IDs in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, which we will also be looking at. But like I said earlier, God did not simply, God could have given them a driver's license or an Israelite license. You know, if you carry this, you are my people. But what he gave them was circumcision and sacrificial systems and the sanctuary and the, the Ark of the Covenant and all these other things. And yes, they were all external. But we know for a fact from the Old Testament alone, they were not supposed to be only external, but rather they would only be real. They would only be legitimate if they agreed upon with the inner experience of the individual. The sacrifices, as we said earlier, between Cain and Abel, they, they were an outward exercise that revealed inner faith in God's saving grace and love. And that's what God could accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Circumcision, later on in Jeremiah, God would clarify and Paul would expound in Romans chapter 1 and 2 where God would say, I, I'm not, it wasn't really the circumcision of your body, but the circumcision of your heart. That's what I wanted, your heart to be circumcised. So again, in the Old Testament, God would, would complain. All you're showing me is an external ID, when in reality, I wanted you to have it inwardly before you even had it outwardly. Um, the Sabbath was supposed to be an emblem of sanctification, a demonstration of God's creative power transforming my heart. That was the, the inner experience of Sabbath, resting in the works and the power of God. You had priestly clothing, uh, inner holiness. You had a diet, a, a real regard that, that were not separate entities, that as we will study about uh, the, the Bible teachings and what we as Seventh-day Adventists have come to learn from the scriptures, we're not separate entities of here's my body, here's a soul, here's a spirit, and those three entities are together me. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that what I do to the body affects me spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually even. Because Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And he precedes that with, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So all of these things will hopefully help you understand why Seventh-day Adventists practice some of these external things. They're not supposed to be external only, of course. They're supposed to be a reflection, a, a demonstration that there's something going on inside, something that the grace of God has done inwardly. I want to glorify God by taking care of the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. So this idea of external IDs, God did provide them, but again, under the understanding, with the understanding that if you accept circumcision, if you accept these things, if you accept these realities, external realities, is because you have accepted by faith the inner working of my power in your life. Today, unfortunately, Christianity, uh, by departing, we've always done this. In the Old Testament, is replete of God's people constantly, you know, veering off, veering off this way. We're no better in the Christian uh, era, in the Christian time. Um, we have, you know, the, the book of Acts and the, the first century Christians, second century Christians, but by the time we get to third, fourth century Christianity, it begins to shift, it begins to change. And when Constantine makes Christianity legal and part of the Roman Empire's uh, religion, the religion of the empire, 
Christianity takes a very different turn. And we don't have time to go into all of that. Um, maybe throughout the series, I'll bring some more details in that regards. But what has ended up happening is because of that departure from Scripture, and that is one of the core um, tenets of Seventh-day Adventists, we, we have to base everything on Scripture. And we're not unique in that. Uh, other religions, other denominations affirm that as well. And we're glad for that, the Baptists, the Methodists, etc. Um, but unfortunately... Um, many people take extra things and add them to the scriptures. What has ended up, ended up happening is, um, as the Catholic Church um, diverted, and that's why we have Protestantism, you may not even know why you have an external ID, right? There are many Adventists that if you ask them what is Seventh-day Adventism, they'll say it's a really long name. Man, I wish we were just Baptists, right? Just one word, Seventh-day Adventist. Um, that's all they know. Unfortunately, many Baptists don't know either. Uh, many Pentecostals, many Methodists, many Lutherans, many Catholics. There are some that do, and I want to affirm them for taking ownership of their uh, spiritual heritage. But as a whole, many people don't know what it means to be a Protestant. Have you ever wondered why you don't have the, the Protestant church? It's because we're all Protestants. Methodists, Adventists, Baptists, Anabaptists, Lutherans, we're all Protestants. And so under the canopy of the various denominations, all of us fall under this Protestant um, category because we protested that the Catholic Church diverted from Scripture. And because the, the Roman Catholic Church diverted from Scripture, they didn't really divert. What they did is they uh, developed traditions, church traditions, and then the church traditions began to take more and more importance in church life as opposed to the scriptures. And um, sorry, I just wanted to carry this for the sermon. But the scriptures and then tradition became almost the same. And eventually tradition interpreted scripture. The, the church traditions superseded the scriptures. And it's not original what the Roman Catholic Church did, and it's not something that we should say, oh, those evil individuals. The, the Jews, in the, time, the religious leaders at the time of Christ, did the exact same thing. Jesus could say to them in Mark chapter 7, you make void the commandments of God by keeping your traditions, the traditions of men. We're prone to do that. And I think every denomination is guilty at some point of doing that. So... Uh, when the Catholic Church diverted in that direction, the Protestant Church has gradually been seeking to restore what has been lost. That's why we exist. As a Methodist, I hope you understand that that's why you exist. And where I'm pastoring out at now in the Cadillac Church, as I drive around, I see uh, a lot of churches in the Cadillac and Lake City area, which is a good thing. People want to go to church. People value church. Amen for that. But do you know why you go there? And more than that, right? Why does the Seventh-day Adventist Church do, do things a little different than the rest? That's why this series, I, I feel impressed to do it at this time, so that as a pastor of another denomination, uh, as a fellow laborer in the ministry, you will have a better understanding of why we are there. I'm going to read to you some statistics from the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, research that they've done, and this is a bit dated, it's from the 2000, year 2006. In the United States, of course, there's more now, but as of 2006, 
in the yearbook of U.S. and Canadian churches, there were 217 different denominations. But when you go worldwide, that number goes up to nine, over 9,000 denominations. Um, and so you can understand why the Roman Catholic uh, brothers and sisters would say, look at you guys, look how fragmented you are. That's, why, that's what happens when you leave the mother church. You should come back. And you, I can understand why they would say that. You know, you, you're giving Christianity a bad name. Because people will look at the, the different denominations and will feel discouraged. Um, but what I would say to our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church is, why are you there? And are you united really? Because not even the Roman Catholic Church is united. There's controversies and conflicts. You know, some people want uh, female priests, others don't. Uh, some people want the, the removal of the celibacy vow for priests. They want priests to be able to get married. And there are segments that actually do that. So there's no real, you know, homogeneous, cohesive unity, even within the Roman Catholic Church, if, if we're honest about it. But regardless of all of that, Roman Catholic, Pentecostal, Baptist, uh, Anabaptist, Lutheran, you name it, the 214, 217 churches that we have, or more denominations, those are all external IDs, and we kind of develop them ourselves. Um, it's not that God assigned those, and I don't think God really wanted, for sure, 217 plus denominations sprawl around Canada and the U.S. Um, what God wanted was growth. What God wanted was a continual examination and a refusal to say we've arrived, which is why many of these denominations exist, and we will look at that through this series. But we want to start out with challenging every single one of us especially Seventh-day Adventists, because I am a pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, though we can call ourselves Christians, we'll begin to see the broad effect of the Church's general departure from the vital inner ID and the seduction of only outward IDs. Rites and ceremonies that are done outwardly as somehow be being the all-in-all -all and replacing the true emphasis of an inner experience. Um, individuals that look at the church today are the, the younger generation that look at the vast variety and differences of denominations um, will have two experiences. They'll have an obstacle because which one? You know, I flip the channel and this pastor from this church says, this church teaches the truth from the Bible, 100% undiluted truth. And you'll turn to another channel and that same pastor will say the exact same thing. And you ask me and I will tell you the exact same thing. I only teach from the Bible. I only teach from the Bible. So why do you go to different buildings? Why is your, your ID, your external ID saying this and your external ID saying that and your external ID saying that? Who, who's real? Who's got the real ID? So it becomes an obstacle. And many young people say, forget that. I don't want to have to pick. I'll just pick something completely different. You know, it's like a town. Uh, imagine Cadillac with only Mexican restaurants, right? And all of them are telling you, we're the authentic Mexican restaurants, right? Um, how are you going to go? Which one are you going to go? And you only have Mexican to choose from. You may want to try this one and you like this one because your dad went there and your grandma went there and so that's where you go there. But then someone shares with you a taco from the, the restaurant across the street and, you street and you're like, mm, this taco is 
way better than these tacos. And you go across the street and you've changed Mexican restaurants because of a taco and because they have better mariachi music. But you know, from Mexican to Mexican to Mexican to Mexican to Mexican, someone, someone might one day call and, or, or approach you and say, have you ever tried Italian? What? And because your town only has Mexican restaurants, you'll be like, forget it, trying to find the real authentic Mexican restaurant. I'm just gonna go and try Italian. Many of the young adults and the youth that are growing up as Christians in Christian homes, when they see, and they are not blind to this, some of the churches, even here in the Detroit area, I'm still here trying to relocate myself up north, but here in the Detroit area where, where I've been pastoring now and transitioning over to the Cadillac, when our young people go to church, it, 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 that does not escape them, the fact that right across from our parking lot is another church, another group of individuals that claim to believe things from the same Bible, but they go to that restaurant and I come to this restaurant. Why do you go to your restaurant? Why do you go to your church? We all can easily be seduced by only the external IDs, a name, a title. I'm a Lutheran. Why? Because your mom, your dad, your wife, your parents? And is that sufficient reason? Is that sufficient reason even for you to say this is what I am. Externals never replace the inner. And some individuals uh, actually will go a step further and say, forget Christianity altogether. Um, I think they're all wrong because if they can't even agree amongst themselves, they're probably all wrong. So forget with Christianity. I prefer atheism. I prefer that to believe that there is no God because if there is one, he wouldn't have so many fragmented believers all fighting with each other saying, I am, I am, I am. So this multiplicity of denominations can become an obstacle and can become a discouragement that leads people to just reject Christianity altogether. So this is a very important subject, especially at the time we're finding ourselves to be in in history. Some Christians with well good intentions have said, well, maybe the problem is the denomination. Maybe it's the label. So we have... We've had for the past couple of decades this uh, growth of non-denominational churches. Have you heard of those? Non-denominational churches. You know, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we had a pizzeria called the No Name Pizzeria. And when you got the box, it said big letters, No Name Pizzeria. You know what the problem is with that mindset is that that's the name. <laughs> that's the, the name of the pizzeria, No Name Pizzeria. And you know what the problem is with non-denominational? That's the denomination you are a non-denominational denomination. It's just trying to play around with the reality of, well, forget all of these different uh, Mexican restaurants. We are the non-Mexican Mexican restaurant. I hope you understand the, the point. I think that is a better path. I think the Bible presents to us a better path. And it begins with you and I asking ourselves those questions that I've already asked you. Why are you there? Why do you sit on a Seventh-day Adventist pew when there's a lot of beautiful churches around the area with a lot of beautiful Christians surrounding us? Why aren't you on Sundays in their churches? Because of an external thing? Because of a day? Because of why? See, and this is where the, um, the gospel confronts humanity from day one, from the moment sin entered and we began to express our faith as Cain and Abel came to God expressing their faith, one came with an ID that God said, I can accept that. 
But another one came to the same God with an idea that God said, that is only external. I need something internal. What, do you, what would you say to God? What would God say to you with the ideas that you would present to him when he would come to you and say, I need to see your gospel ID. I want to see what identifies you yourself to yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we have a, uh, an opportunity now, and I'm not going to spend too much time, at least in this sermon, I can't spend too much time with other denominations. I will focus more on the one that I want to hold accountable, the, the denomination that I pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you need to know this if you are a pastor of other denominations or if you have family that belong to other denominations. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church didn't just appear out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. We actually, our initial birth was by a, a Baptist pastor named William Miller. So we have strong Baptist roots within Seventh-day Adventists. You may not know that. Uh, James and Ellen White, they are one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventists. Um, Ellen White came from a Methodist background and James White came from a Christian connection background. So we were not just Seventh-day Adventists from the get-go. That didn't come till some dec- a decade and a half later from when we first started gathering and studying about the second coming of Jesus. But our roots are there. It is part of our DNA. We have strong Baptist roots in that we believe strongly and defend vehemently the, the authority of scriptures, the historicity of scriptures, the literalness of the Genesis account from Genesis 1 through 11, all of those things are near and dear to us. And that's part of the heritage that we appreciate so much from our Baptist brothers and sisters. The Methodists, the, the, the way that they study the Bible, which is a methodical system of comparing Scripture with Scripture. We love that. So those are part of our DNA. So we're not just altogether separate, you know, way out there. Um, we have a lot of other denominations that is part of our DNA as well. But even for us, this same question is just as poignant as anyone else belonging to the 217 plus denominations across the U.S. and Canada. God to each of us says, ID please. ID please. Not that he knows to see it, but we need to examine whether we have the, the legitimate heart manifestation of the ID God is looking for, what identifies us. Um, Some of the things that are uh, very core within Adventism is our mission. And our mission is not unique, it's evangelism. We are huge on evangelism. It's one of the reasons we've grown so much. We emphasize that and we haven't emphasized it as much as we should have and some of the emphasis have have been, uh, anyways. We're getting better. We're still improving in the process. Um, but evangelism is huge, but we're not unique, like I said. You, you may know Billy Graham, right? World-renowned evangelist, and, and we affirm and, and are thankful for his ministry and the many he has led to Christ um, through the Crusades for Christ events that he has. And I've subscribed to Christianity Today, which is a magazine that he started. He was the founder of it. Uh, but as Adventists, One of the reasons we're having this event called Hope Awakens that starts uh, soon is with the hopes of people understanding the truth. Because it's not simply that we go out there saying, you know, whatever we want to say. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe God has called us to present the truth. And if if you belong to any denomination, any Christian denomination, um, your denomination may be growing more and more uncomfortable with that statement 
the truth. We are too. Some within us are, are becoming uncomfortable with the truth because we are being affected by relativism and pluralism, where someone coming to you and telling you that they have the truth is, is an arrogant statement. Like, how do you know? Or the statement that, well, that's awesome that you've discovered your truth. Don't bother me with my truth. The, the world has shifted in that regards, and that's why denominations feel uncomfortable with the idea that here's a church that claims to be preaching the truth. Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that God has asked us to preach the truth. But the truth should be offensive to any Christian, including Seventh-day Adventists, if the truth simply means or really is detached, disjointed, and disconnected fact from the Bible. Um, I've heard evangelists from all different kinds of denominations uh, preach horrible disconnected sermons in which they are presenting facts of evolution versus Christianity, the facts of Jesus' historicity, and, and they present it in a very compelling, intellectual, correct kind of manner, but disconnected. Disconnected, at least, from the gospel. Disconnected from Jesus Christ. That's not the truth. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that um, we are not called to do this in a vacuum. But they're actually, we're standing on the shoulders of centuries of godly individuals from the various churches, from the various denominations, who have also been called by God to do exactly what we feel we've been called by God to do. From within the Roman Catholic Church, John Huss, he felt compelled, convicted to give masses in the language of the people, in the common language, and they loved to hear John Huss, and he was a Roman Catholic priest. Martin Luther, uh, he was not a Lutheran. <laughs> Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. And uh, the, the, the idea that you know, the Bible, the Sola Scriptura, came to him while he was still a Roman Catholic. Um, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church because he refused to let go of what his faith had laid a hold of. The just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1. So this, this idea that Seventh-day Adventists feel that we've been called to preach the truth is not a, a boast like we're the only ones. We should be at least very much aware that we have not been the only ones. Um, that there are many who have gone before us, and many who are many in other denominations who are also studying the scriptures with the same desire, not simply to present disconnected, disjointed facts from the Bible, but I've left something out from the statement of the truth. The truth about God. The Seventh-day Adventist Church what compels us to preach, what compels us to do public events, and what compels us to invite and entreat people to come and hear the gospel is because we feel convicted that as we've gleaned from that rich heritage that we have behind us, starting with the Roman Catholic Church and onwards through the Lutherans and the Anabaptists, etc., etc., all throughout the centuries, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants of the faith, Calvin, etc., uh, Wesley's, all of those individuals. And we are now still in this trajectory. We haven't arrived. That's why I love the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, we believe that we don't know everything. We as a church uh, assert the fact that we haven't discovered everything that there's to be discovered in the Bible. That's why our church steers away from creeds and dogmas. Because we see them as, they're not that they're bad, but they could be bad. It's like bones, right? Bones are calcium. 
they're, they're strong, they need to be solid and immovable, right? But they also need to be flexible. And the moment you, the moment you start calcifying your joints, you start losing mobility. And for me, that, that's a metaphor of what happens when a church chooses to say, we've arrived, therefore let us calcify ourselves in this dogma or this creed that will become immovable, uh, ir irreversible. Well, what if there's something in there that needs improvement? Because the truth about God, I mean, how can a church claim to have arrived at that? That's borderline blasphemous. Does your church believe that it knows everything there is to know about God or that we can still discover more beauties about God? And that's what the Seventh-day Adventist Church holds dearly, that we are in this directory. We've barely begun to scratch the surface and in eternity, we will still be learning about this awesome God we serve and His amazing grace that saves us. Um, I know that within our, my church, there's individuals that are present. I believe in every other church as well, every other denomination that dig their heels when a church wants to do outreach or evangelism. Um, maybe for a legitimate reason because of how they've seen evangelism being done in the past. When we were bopping people over the heads or screaming you know, from the pulpit or pounding the pulpit and wagging our fingers in people's faces. And they're like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to invite my friends to have someone's fingers wagged at their face. And I've been guilty of that. And I've repented of that. Um, I think that with this idea of absolute truth, the truth about God, the way that our world has affected us, it, we may think that someone telling us, hey, you need to come and hear the truth, as someone that already has um, ascribed to themselves a superiority complex. We know more than you. Come, you, you know, nincompoop, hear it from brilliant people like us. And because it comes across that way, many people from within the Seventh-day Adventist Church and probably other churches as well, they're a bit uncomfortable because we don't want to sound arrogant. But you know, Luther didn't want to sound arrogant, and neither did Luther. Um, this idea that if I come under the conviction that there's something clearer, as I've studied, and there's something that, man, here's something that explains it better, I should share that. Um, it's actually biblical. In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, it says, uh, Acts 18, 24 through 26, is a powerful verse. This gave me so much uh, encouragement when I was church planting in Columbus, Ohio. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was mighty in the scriptures. He could quote scriptures. He knew Torah backwards and forwards, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms. He knew this. He was a mighty man in the scriptures. And uh, he was taught in the way of the Lord. And he was fervent in spirit. He was passionate, full of conviction. He spoke and taught, and here's the word, accurately. Apollos was a man mighty in the scriptures, anointed with the Spirit, preaching, and he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is the Protestant Reformation. 
Actually, this was supposed to be Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church, our dear brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church, should have listened to this verse and said, we haven't arrived yet. Let's be careful with dogmas. Let's be careful with this idea of infallibility because we are very much fallible. The only thing that is infallible is God's word. And my puny, tiny little brain needs to approach it with deep humility because today I can teach it accurately, but tomorrow someone may come to me and teach me more accurately the way of the Lord. And so we've seen this trajectory repeated over and over and over and over throughout history. Luther, you know, the just shall live by faith, praise God, the anchor point, that, that foundation, that immovable foundation, because it's from Scripture, not from Luther. But, you know, you go a little bit forward into history, and you have the Anabaptist. And the Anabaptists believe that, you know, from Scripture, that you yourself have to make the act, make the choice of repenting and expressing that repentance through baptism. So they understood from that that if you're going to make that choice, you have to make that choice. Your parents can make that choice for you when you are a baby. You have to make that choice as an older person. And there's more theology behind there. It's not as simple as that. Um, for the sake of time, I'm just simplifying it from history. But the Lutherans saw the Anabaptists refusing to baptize their babies and began to persecute them. The Lutherans, just like the Catholics, should have looked at this verse and said, maybe we need to be like Apollos. Though we have been teaching accurately the way of God, maybe there is a more accurate way to teach it or understand it. You know, I wrestle with that, that, that statement. He taught accurately. He doesn't say he taught kind of accurately. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 4. How can you get more accurate than that? Well, we're not doing math. We're doing God's character. We're doing the infinite, eternal, almighty, all-powerful God. And we want to say we've arrived. And that's my appeal to you as a Seventh-day Adventist. Sometimes we act like there's nothing more to learn. Sometimes we feel that we're secure because of an outward ID. When Jesus says, show me your ID, and make sure I need to cover my numbers, <laughs> show me your ID, I hope you just don't give him a title of a denomination. And I say the same thing to you as a Baptist, as a Christian reform, as a Catholic, as a Lutheran, whoever you may be watching this. When Jesus asks you for an ID, what will you give him? A Lutheran? I'm an Anabaptist? I'm a Roman Catholic? Those are external. Apollos, he was mighty in the scriptures, anointed by the Spirit, and he was teaching accurately. And when Priscilla and Aquila come to him and humbly, respectfully, beautifully, biblically, share with him more accurately, Apollos doesn't persecute them. Apollos doesn't ridicule them. Apollos doesn't shame them or, or do all these things to invalidate their point. Apollos recognizes it is biblical. Or like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, after Paul teaches them, they went home and studied the scriptures. Do you do that after a sermon? I hope my members will do that after my sermons. I hope, I hope that they'll go back and not simply say, well, Pastor Ariel, he's nice. You know, he's never gotten a ticket. Certainly, he must be a good pastor. Hey, he's got a ministerial license, right? Certainly, he must be a good pastor. Because when you have a driver's license, certainly that means you are a good driver. And just like when you have a marriage license, it must mean you are a good husband, a good wife, right? The 
truth about God matters. What we say about God matters because it's two sides of the same coin. On one end, you have God through His grace revealing what He does to humans, and humans comprise the church. And so because God acts upon a human being, and this is the coin, God acts upon a human being. Now this human being has the opportunity and responsibility of describing how this God has acted and who this God is. And when I describe this God, others will hear me and say, well, that's how that God must be. And like I said earlier, there's a reason why throughout history, people have rejected the living God, the God of the Bible, not because of the seductions of idolatry, not because of secular pursuits. The only reason why they rejected accepting and believing in God is because of what the church taught about God. You have to think about that. There are people today that are atheists, and they will tell you, I'm an atheist not because I went to a secular university or a secular college. I'm an atheist because I heard the sermons from the pulpit from my church. And the way they described God as this individual that would do these things and do that things, and he would condemn these people, and he would pour judgment on those individuals. I'm going to tell you that having church planted in various places and as an evangelist in many various places and as a pastor in various places, I'm inviting you to stay with this series, especially if you are non-Seventh-day Adventist, if you're from another denomination, because you may have been told things about God. And as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, I would love to have an opportunity for you to hear more accurately. Things about predestination, things about hell, death, and the second coming of Jesus. All of those things matter, but not isolated and separated. All of those things, those, those things matter when you put them together, and because it's one puzzle, the pieces should fit. And it would be my presentation, it would be my argument that, like Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos, that how many Christians or how some individuals or some, how some, some denominations present some of these topics on predestination, on eternal hell, on death, on the second coming, doesn't fit the puzzle. It doesn't fit the puzzle that the Bible provides for us. And I humbly appeal to you that you, you would hear us out. You would give the Seventh-day Adventists an opportunity to explain the heart of Adventism. Like you, we share the same passion, sharing the gospel with others, telling about others about Jesus. I pray for the other pastors in the area. I'm part of the ministerial association, and I pray for them. They're men and women like me that want to share Jesus with others. But what I share about Jesus, what I share about God, could have implications that I never make the connection. This person is rejecting God because of what I'm teaching him, what I'm teaching her is what I am teaching from the Bible, from the Bible. We may be surprised. We need to conclude. So Jesus is asking us, can I see your ID, please? Can I see your ID, please? You're behind the car. Certainly you must have a license. 
Certainly, you must have a driver's license. Can I see your ID, please? You're in a church. Certainly, you must have an ID. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be spiritual. Can I see your ID, please? Can I see your heart? Can I see what's inside? Or is it just external? Father, thank you. Thank you that you've never wanted something only on the external. What you value most, Lord, is our hearts. Father, I pray that I would have what constitutes for you the real ID. What really identifies me as your follower, your believer, your worshiper. And I pray that for everyone that hears this message. That they will not simply hide and justify themselves on some external ID. That they will allow the Spirit of God to search their hearts. And that they will be able to be honest with themselves. As to whether their ID may only be on the outside. It has never reached on the inside. I pray for them. I pray for those that are courageously accepting and owning this reality. And I pray, Father, that all of us will not be satisfied where we are at. That none of us will feel that we've arrived and satisfied with what our parents taught us or what other pastors have taught us. Praise the Lord for their ministries in our lives. I'm thankful for Pastor Willie Caraballo, Lord, a United Methodist pastor that ministered to me at my youth. I'm thankful for him and his ministry. But Father, I cannot choose to be satisfied and simply feel, believe that I've arrived. But Lord, put in us a desire, a conviction daily to know you more, to know you more accurately. In Jesus' name, amen.